Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. Amtrak two years ago unveiled an expansion plan that linked dozens of cities with proposed new and expanded passenger rail routes, including several in Ohio. Now the state is preparing to seek federal funds to conduct a cost-benefit analysis of such an undertaking. William Murdoch is executive director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. Morpsey is made up of more than 80 members from counties, cities, villages, townships, and re- regional organizations collaborating on planning the future of this growing region. William Murdoch, welcome to All Sides. Thanks for having me. How long has the planning included passenger rail? Oh, Morpsey's been working on this for at least 10 years to connect Columbus to the nation's network. What uh, changed um, 10 years ago or in 2010, uh, Governor Kasich, then Governor Kasich, turned down $400 million in federal aid to do uh, just a study, uh, a feasibility study. Um, what's changed, do you think, that um, suggests the state might embrace this this time around? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, from that moment, we started looking forward to seeing what could we do to connect the nation's largest region back to the nation's passenger rail network? And the proposal that is before us this time uh, prioritizes speed, prioritizes rural service and urban service. And the opportunity to get this funded and move it forward is unlike we've seen in, in generation where there is more federal funds to move these projects forward uh, than at any time in Amtrak's history. So there's a chance to to get it done this time. Right. It, Ten years ago, they had the money for the feasibility studies, but there was supposed to be a lot more state and local uh, investment than this time around. What? How, how did that work? That's right. Well, going forward, uh, the federal match is potentially up to 80%. So even what we're going for here in March as a state on uh, a couple routes is 100% match to start the study. So there's it, the the impact of FRA, the Federal Road Administration, what they're doing is different. Amtrak's thinking more like a business, too, where they're looking at how can they invest in getting these lines moving forward. What factors go into a feasibility study like this? Yeah. One thing you'll look at is potential ridership. And when you're looking at the national network, there is more potential ridership in uh, the middle of Ohio than just about anywhere else in the country because we don't currently have service. So we have large cities along the route from uh, Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, Cincinnati. That could be the potentially densest route on their entire network. You also look for good institutions, universities, businesses that are going to use that route. And you also look for the need. And we know that there are rural communities that want better access as well as urban communities who would like more choices when it comes to either just traveling within Ohio or uh, traveling other places. To what extent, if at all, do you think that the Intel investment in Licking County um, maybe, I don't know, lit a match? Yeah, certainly Intel has uh, has lit uh, a match all over us here in central Ohio and beyond, thinking about how this region could change and grow. And one of the things that it does is it should raise everybody's expectations for what this this region could have. And what I mean by that is we should expect to have more transportation options. Yes, highways and roads, but certainly we want trains. We want transit in a different way. And being a bigger growing region, those are things that we're going to want. 
You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. We're talking about the prospects for passenger rail in central Ohio, linking the three C's, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, and D, Dayton, uh, with Amtrak passenger rail. If you have a question or comment this hour, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at allsides at wosu.org. And, you know, we're interested in what you think about this generally, and if you have any questions, my guest is, William Murdoch, he is executive director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. It's also known as MORPC. You'll hear me call it that. Um, William Murdoch, I read that the corridor would connect with many existing transportation networks, uh, including Cleveland's Rapid Transit Authority, Cleveland Hopkins Airport, Columbus Coda, and Cincinnati's Metro System. And I wondered, was it just an oversight or whatever? Of course, I wondered, well, what about Columbus Columbus's airport. What about Cincinnati, Cincinnati's airport? So that's a great question. Well, Cincinnati's airport is in Kentucky. Right. So, uh, but when we look at John Glenn International here in Columbus, uh, as the same time the state is advancing what we call the 3 C and D corridor, Morpsey and Partners are advancing a corridor that goes from Pittsburgh, Columbus, on up to Chicago. And that goes directly past John Glenn International Airport. So we're we're definitely contemplating how to connect the airport into that network. And and that's something that's different from 10 years ago, too, is we have we want to make sure the line connects to other ways to get around, whether it's a plane, uh, whether it's transit. And frankly, 10 years ago, we didn't even have things like Lyft or Uber. So when you arrive at that train stop, you want to make sure your your next journey is ready to go. Uh, let's see. Um, joining us now is. Um Mark Magliari, uh, he is an Amtrak spokesperson. Mark, welcome to the show. Okay, I don't see Mark. Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, still with me is William Murdoch. He is executive director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. Um, uh, okay, so there was feedback from throughout the region about expanded passenger rail in Morpsey's 2050 Metropolitan Transportation Report. What did you learn about what people want? We've heard they want all the options, so uh, trails, trains, transit. Talking about uh, trains, it was it's it's been consistent where small towns want to connect into this network. Residents of Columbus and the suburbs are looking for more options, and consistently, passenger rail is the top thing uh, that our residents want, our business leaders want. Well, what's changed? Because there was a lot of uh, hmm, I don't know what the word is, but a lot of disdain. 10 years ago? I think frustration is the way that I would put it. And what we're looking at is when you have the opportunity to add something like passenger rail, is making sure that you're being really smart from a ridership perspective. So you want nice speeds. You want it to be competitive with automobile travel. And the proposals we're looking at now do that. So we're looking at you know, just about two and a half hours to Cleveland by train. That's pretty competitive, especially if you hit traffic on 71. You know, I wanted to talk about the issue of speed. Now, of course, everybody wants to get everywhere faster, but I always see speed sort of referenced in a vacuum, as if speed is the only thing. Um, When you're on a train or a bus, you don't have to worry about who's steering and pushing down the the gas pedal, you can do other things while you're traveling. What about that value uh, from from something like a train and, and, and mass transit in general? Yeah, certainly for a choice rider, uh, somebody who wants to choose that option, speed isn't the only thing. It's an important thing. But to your point, not having to deal with uh, paying attention in traffic, having the convenience to get up and stretch, to read. I like to joke, 
uh, you all can work on the train. I'd like to take a nap <laughs> if I get a chance, right? That's an option that you have. That quality of experience on the train is it's really important. It applies to transit, too, making sure that, yes, you're thinking about speed, but also convenience, access, and uh, how, how nice the experience is and allows you to, to do other things. And when, we talk, when we're talking about ma- the passenger rail at this point and in the context of you know, what we're looking at, we're not talking about commuter rail, right? That's correct, yeah. Very different thing. Yeah. Does having a solid passenger connection in Columbus raise the prospects for commuter rail in Columbus? So when we look around the country, when you have passenger rail on these lines in major metropolitan areas, often the next step is to look at how to add additional service so within the region to that. So whether it's Miami or you know other communities like that, they've, they've done very well. Taking this first step allows us to, to do that because once you have the rails uh, and the usage of that negotiated, once you've got the ability to access it, even uh, frequent passenger rail service might just be a couple times a day. You have the ability to add commuter rail or other types of services. Can you talk about the value of fixed rail and why what that brings to a community? Yeah, fixed rail is dependable. And that means that everyone knows that they can go to the station and get on the train. And they can have access to other places, other ways of getting around. It's also important from an economic development lens. And this isn't the only thing you think about, but if you're looking at developing housing or uh, mixed use, knowing that that train stop is there allows you to plan capital investments and to to build buildings and to build amenities. That's really important. And when you're a community, you know, we talk to a lot of small communities, they're looking at connecting in uh, small downtowns, uh, regional trail networks, those kind of things. The train stop doesn't move usually, so that allows them that certainty to make these other investments. And it, there is a prospects for linking small town Ohio into this, right? Absolutely. Yeah, both of the lines that we're looking at out of Columbus, uh, you know, we're talking to communities like Marysville, uh, on up to Bell Fountain or Lima, Newark, certainly Delaware. Uh, there's a lot of communities that are really thinking strategically about how they could take advantage of this. And what we hear in rural areas in particular is, well, it's about tourism, but it's also about what you said earlier. Boy, wouldn't it be nice to get on the train and take the hour train trip to the airport so I don't have to drive there and, uh, there and back? Business leaders are thinking the same thing. Uh, college leaders are thinking the same thing. It gives it gives these communities access uh, for students, for uh, the workforce. It's It could be a game changer. Um, the Franklin County Convention Facilities Authority said it has plans and initial designs for a station at the Greater Columbus Convention Center. I mean, trains go right through there, right? Is that what they're thinking? They do. And and so these lines we're looking at to Cleveland and Cincinnati and Chicago and Pittsburgh, those two lines actually cross at the convention center. So they've been very forward thinking in preparing a, a design and to get ready for it. And the infrastructure is kind of there for it. it it is the there are trains that go on both of those routes already. Uh, part of what we're we'll be seeking as a state and along these routes is not just the Amtrak service, but the capital upgrades. So we got to make those tracks better, not just for passenger rail, but we also want to solve freight battle bottlenecks at the same time. So there'll need to be improvements to them, but the tracks are there. Um, I you know speaking of freight, uh, I'm wondering if the recent freight derailments, especially the one in. Um uh, East Palestine, uh, but just in general, is it raising concerns about upping passenger rail? You know, if anything, it, we think it, it's even more important now to do the study of this system. When we think about passenger rail, part of the investments to make those those uh, railways safer, that's not just passenger, it's freight. Uh, 
So this is a great, a terrible tragedy, of course, in East Palestine and some of the other derailments. But this is the perfect time to put a spotlight on it so we can make the improvements we need to keep uh, freight and passenger safe. Is the idea, is it, would they build new lines or would they share the lines with the existing freight lines? That's what the study is going to determine. So okay. in a lot of cases, they'll share with the freight uh, railroads. Depending on the bottlenecks we want to solve or the speeds or the stations, there may be some new construction as part of it. Okay. And um, that's something that, how do you, when do you do a study like this apart from, say, Amtrak, or is Amtrak involved in the study? So the current proposal is actually through what's called the Federal Railroad Administration, or FRA. We've mm -hmm. been hearing a lot about mm -hmm. that in the news with East Palestine. So FRA would be the lead working with the state or other entities uh, to do what's called a service development plan. And that's that's that plan that's going to answer those questions about safety, cost, routes, frequency, all of that. Amtrak certainly could, is expected to be a partner in all of that. Let's see. I'm going to take a call from Rachel in Columbus. Hi, Rachel. You're on the air. Um, hello. Hi, yeah. Ann. Hi. Go ahead. Oh, um, well, you know, this topic, of course, has come up uh, in Ohio. It's a it's a perennial issue, yeah. um, and, it, and it always gets turned down. And I'm always mystified, like, why? Like, and, that, and then to learn that Kasich actually turned that opportunity down, I'm thinking, whatever for? Why? What is the gain and who gains from Ohio not having that opportunity of rail? Yeah. Um, and then just let me piggyback on what Rachel just asked is, I use the word disdain, and I kind of sense it's in the still in a, a, some people's minds. One one lawmaker called them choo choos. Um, when we hear about anything like streetcars or fixed commuter rail or anything like that, they talk about, you know, like rice San Francisco riceroni, and they make fun of it like it's a joke. <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, there is some of that out there, and I think it's changing. And I think why it's changing is because other regions around the country view it differently and they're seeing the benefits. So you'll hear all the time business people who are like, oh, thank goodness, I can ride the train from Raleigh to Charlotte, do my work. It's comfortable. I don't have to deal with traffic. There's that experience that yeah, changes their mind. You know, we have an employee whose grandma lives in Springfield and she doesn't have other options to get around. If, if the train stopped there, that would give her a comfortable, safe way to do it. And you can toss around uh, terms like that. Trains have been around for over 100 years, so it's it's easy to poke fun. But when you're seeing modern trains and the experience, yes, the speed, but also uh, the quality of the service, uh, I think it changes people's minds pretty quickly. And in Columbus, in central Ohio, we just don't have the experience of having trains. We haven't had them since over 40 years ago. So right. as people experiences again we think that not only will that attitude change they'll demand more and better service okay rachel thanks for that call uh we will take a break then we'll get back to it we're talking about the prospects for uh passenger rail in central ohio uh, connecting the three c's and d that is cincinnati cleveland columbus and dayton uh, if you have a question or comment give us a call 614-292-8513 or email us at allsides at wosu.org you're listening to all sides with ann fisher on 89.7 npr news
This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Dan Fisher. Amtrak two years ago unveiled an expansion plan that linked dozens of cities with proposed new and expanded routes, including several passenger rail routes in Ohio. Now the state is preparing to seek federal funds to conduct a cost-benefit analysis of such an undertaking. Still with us, William Murdoch, Executive Director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. Amtrak spokesperson Mark Magliari joins us now. Uh, Mark, hi. Welcome back. Very glad to be with you, and you have uh, one of the leaders across the nation in expanding passenger rail with you on the other line with Mr. Murdoch. Morpsey is, uh, has really led the way in central Ohio and across the state and even the Midwest is inspiring other planning organizations to step up and do what they're doing, which is advocate for more passenger rail service. I think I talked to you about 10 years ago, Mark, after Ohio was pretty much out of the game um, after Governor Kasich uh, refused or returned the $400 million to the federal government. Um, what do you think's changed, Mark? Well, I, we, actually, I think, and we talked in the fall, too, and that's when, when uh, William and the other MPOs and lots of other people across Ohio saw what was happening with Congress passing the bipartisan infrastructure law. So for the first time, yeah. really, ever, there's funding now to do lots of things, including study new service, to restore service that was lost many years ago, as you lost it in central Ohio, and my mom did in Dayton at the same time in 1979, mm -hmm. or even add service on routes like through Cincinnati, where the Cardinal only is through there three times each week, each direction. So there's only six trains a week in the city that size, and there's now two federal programs that are out there to, to either establish new service or to uh, restore service that was lost, including service lost across northern Ohio when the train that was the uh, Broadway Limited and then eventually the Three Rivers went away. There are places that Akron still has a little itty-bitty station last time I was there next to the tracks. And all over Ohio and the Midwest, people want more Amtrak service, and now there are federal programs to make it happen. Since 2010, Amtrak and the Federal Railroad Administration have revised the rules of its programs, requiring less buy-in from states. How have the rules been changed? Well, I, it, it, thanks for giving us credit for that. Oh, okay. and, but really, it was, it was us and advocates across the country and Congress finally changing the rules in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Back in 2010, the state of Ohio would have been on the hook before even the first wheel of the train turned for about 80 cents on the dollar between the, the state funding and the fare box. Now, when the service starts, and I'm, I'm sitting here right now in, outside of Mobile, Alabama, where we're going to start service uh, in a few months, the federal government's going to do 90 cents on the dollar, and the states and the fare box have a much lower hurdle to get across to start the service. And that federal money declines over time, but it gives the, the service a chance to prove itself and let the critics and the supporters see who's right. Let's take a call right now from Ed in Baltimore. Hi, Ed, you're on the air. Welcome. Thanks. Thank you, Ed. Um, 
your uh, guest from Amtrak brought up exactly what I was talking about is scheduling. I seem to remember a big uh, kerfuffle about um, when the trains would actually leave once they got to Cleveland and Cincinnati. If you wanted to go to a Cincinnati Reds game or a Browns game, um, the schedule at that time had them leaving at something like 10 o'clock. So for a night game, everybody would be stranded up there if they hadn't made hotel reservations. Mm -hmm. So, um, like I said, I seem to remember that that was one of the big uh, anti-rail points that was going around at that time. Yeah. Um, what about, I mean, obviously it's a big sports state, Mark Magliari. Um, what, do you take that kind of thing into consideration? Sure. I mean, I grew up a Reds fan when I grew up as much as I did in Dayton. And the, aside from the fact that baseball is trying to speed up the games, <laughs> the fact is we do lots of baseball business. If you ride any of our five trains a day between St. Louis and Chicago, you'll see a red going up or a blue going down and Sometimes they're happy on their return. Sometimes they're not. We do the same thing across Missouri between the the Royals and the uh, St. Louis teams there. So we do a lot of uh, sports travel. In fact, we have so much service in the Northeast that some of the teams charter our trains to go back and forth between games. Sports travel is big, and the more uh, teams there are in a market, the more seasons get flattened out between, like, the Cavaliers and and of course, the uh, the uh, what do we call them now? Oh, the the Cleveland Guardians. The Guardians. I yeah. don't know how I remember uh, that. <laughs> well, it's because you're an esteemed radio host, <laughs> right? But, um, <laughs> uh, the fact is, sports travel is a lot of business for us, and and I we're not we're a long way from scheduling the trains, so. When the time comes to plan the service, I'm sure that'll be looked at. So hypothetically, Mark Magliari, if if they had embrace this in 2010 if they'd taken the money and we were on our way how far along would we be at this point as far as establishing i'm trying to get trying to explain to listeners how long this takes what kind of endeavor this is um it's not like putting up a hotel how does it work when you roll something like this out if they do it really depends on the condition of the freight railroad here in in alabama where we're going to start running daily service twice a day between mobile and New Orleans, the railroad is really in pretty good shape. Uh, we're going to be able to achieve uh, maximum authorized speeds of 79, which is uh, faster than you can legally drive here on I-10. So it really goes to that. What's the capacity of the railroad? What condition is it in? And what kind of speeds can it support at start? And what kind of speeds can be improved over time with construction? Here, we know that uh, we're going to start running uh, in a few months, and the railroads need some work. It needs some places for trains to pass each other. But this railroad was rebuilt after Katrina. So yeah. a large part of it was washed away between here and New Orleans. So this is a pretty good railroad. Um, and right now, the railroad in Ohio that we're looking at, whether it's three C's and a D or Morp C's, other uh, advocacy for service from Pittsburgh to to Columbus, to Fort Wayne, to Chicago, mm-hmm. is fine for freight traffic. But we need to be driving time competitive, which means within shouting distance, anyway, of driving speed. 
so you don't get stuck with windshield time like I've had the last hour or so, <laughs> where the only redeeming quality is streaming music and public radio. <laughs> You're listening to All Sides with Dan Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. We're talking about prospects for passenger rail in central Ohio and beyond, connecting the three C's in Dayton. My guest, Mark Magliari, he's an Amtrak spokesman, and also William Murdoch. He is executive director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. Questions or comments, give us a call, 614 292 8513 or email us at allsides at WOSU.org. And Dave in Cleveland, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. Hi, Ann. How you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, I'm a pretty once in a while, a couple times a year Amtrak writer uh, out of Cleveland. I, and I just made a trip uh, last week from Cleveland to Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, and that now, uh, as mentioned, I'd love to see one thing I'd like to do is just, uh, you know, like say, uh, ramping up was your guest mentioned that the addition of uh, just additional service, one or two trains a day on some of the existing lines, the Lakeshore Limited and the uh, and the Capital, uh, or and those are the one that goes to the other one that goes through Cincinnati, uh, but. Uh, also, at the end of my trip, I was down in Fort Worth, Texas, and Fort Worth, the demographics of Fort Worth are very similar, uh, at least population and geography, to uh, uh, to Columbus, and uh, mm-hmm. nobody loves their cars more than Texans and Californians, <laughs> I'm told, but uh, they have developed, you know, the center of downtown Fort Worth, Amtrak, the bus system, mm-hmm. and the Regional rail all meet the same place, super well coordinated. My brother lives in Fort Worth and is able to go to the Dallas hockey team as a season uh, ticket holder without his car. Yeah, and he likes that. Um, Dave, thanks so much uh, in Cleveland for that call. Uh, What about how does a Fort Worth get passenger rail before a Columbus, Mark Magliari? Well, firstly, uh, fact is that we serve Fort Worth in three directions. Our Texas Eagle train goes through Fort Worth. That's what he rode from Chicago, from Dallas across, and then down. And we've had a 25, almost, I guess maybe 30-year partnership with Texas DOT and Oklahoma DOT for daily service back and forth to Oklahoma City on our train, the Heartland Flyer. So they have a long-term partnership there. Ohio once, and and uh, Stu Nicholson can probably expound on this more than I can mm-hmm. from all aboard Ohio. There was once upon a time state-sponsored service in Ohio because the original U.S. DOT map that said where Amtrak was going to go left Cleveland off the map. So Ohio stepped in back in 1971 with some other states to uh, start that service, which we later adopted in the national network. So it really depends on on partnerships. It depends on relationships and of course it also depends on politics and policy mm-hmm. and sometimes those two get tangled up uh yeah william murdoch yeah thanks ann and to, to your caller in cleveland the state of ohio is working on two applications right. right now one actually is cleveland toledo detroit and what we know about the service in cleveland right now is it's just once a day and the goal is to have frequency throughout the day so that it's more convenient uh, certainly, Columbus uh, and all of our communities support better service in northern Ohio because if we get rail from here to there, 
we want options when we get to Cleveland. I'm curious, Mark Magliari, what the what um, the market is between Detroit and Chicago. Well, right now we have state-sponsored service that runs three trains each way every day with us and the Michigan DOT between Detroit and Pontiac and off to Chicago. The biggest, busiest stop in greater Detroit is Dearborn, where there's a glorious station that was opened uh, and named for their former congressman uh, in the last 10 years. And those trains are very popular and very full. And the state of Michigan actually bought the track roughly from Dearborn to uh, Kalamazoo. And that's why we're going 110 MPH up there. And they used some of the leftover Ohio money to do it. So when Ohio turned back the money, uh, Michigan gained, Illinois gained, Wisconsin gained, and Ohio didn't because the money was there and it was suddenly available. And by the way, that was under a Republican governor Mm -hmm. in Michigan that accepted the money. So it's not about D's and R's often enough. It's about policy and planning and, again, politics. Uh, you know, there's. I, I mentioned earlier in the program when I was talking uh, with William Murdoch, William Murdoch, that there's been often I've sensed and heard a certain disdain for passenger rail and for any kind of fixed line, um, tra- you know, mass transit like streetcars or commuter rail or anything like that. And I was just wondering, Mark Bagliari, what sort of insights you have into why that is in Ohio? What's the what's the prejudice? What's the stigma? Um, I, I'm a former Ohioan, and yeah. so I, I've not lived there since 1969. But I think there was some perception when Amtrak was created uh, in 1970 and began operating in 71 that was either a bridge to having no trains at all because it let the other the freight railroads, the the CNO, the BNO, the folks who were railroads then, some of which were going into bankruptcy, like the Pennsylvania and the New York Central in their combination, to let them off their public responsibility to run passenger trains, because they have one. They have a public responsibility. It was transferred to us, and there were some people at the time, in order to to get the bill passed, I understand, who said, oh, no, give it a few years, it'll be profitable. And there was no passenger rail system in the country, including the one in Florida that sometimes is cited, that doesn't operate with uh, public support, whether it's public ownership of the right-of-way, whether it's bonds that are issued that are tax-exempt, or direct funding for capital or for operating. But the the political brokering that took place in 1970 uh, had some people say, oh, it'll be profitable, just wait and see. Mm -hmm. And some people use that as a stick to beat on these ideas, you know, 50 years later. And it's history has shown that when you run frequent, reliable service at a reasonable price, at schedules that are attractive, and we do that all over the country, on freight railroad tracks successfully in coexistence, that people will ride the trains and people will enjoy the fact that they can be productive or not while traveling. They can sleep and text and game or not while traveling, something you cannot do through the windshield of this rental car. (laughs) Let's see. uh, Ade Salam in Columbus, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, and and, uh, hello to your guests. Uh, I'm the project manager for Eastland Mall Development, Uh and uh, we will be building a a mixed-use complex, uh, commercial, and residential. So my question to your guests is, if in the 
feasibility study for this transportation project was there any were there any numbers in respect to the development of the area in like percentages or something like that yeah i i, I get what you're saying i mean how do you measure the economic uh, development or economic impact of rail service in Ohio. Um, maybe I'll start with you, William Murdoch. How, how is Morpsey looking at that? Yeah, I mean, the workforce benefits are really clear. When we look at the potential ridership on these routes, we have to think about how Central Ohio is growing. And additional population means we're going to have additional demand. And if we really want to be able to have the workforce to support all of these this growth, we, we have to know that this is going to be a beneficial thing. So part of this next phase of study will uh, build on what we've done before, which is looking at the the return on investment for Central Ohio and Ohio in terms of economic development near the station. But also you have to think about economic development, just the benefit of having another option for the whole community. Uh, that's something we can quantify, and we think the benefits are vastly going to outweigh the costs. Is there like a multiplier uh, function here, Mark Magliari. I mean, so when you think about investing money in passenger rail, is there some way that you, is there an equation there? Well, there are synergies, certainly. I mean, okay. one of the reasons that, that this service is going to start here on the Gulf Coast is that studies were done by uh, the universities and by the Southern Rail Commission, which has been driving this with us, uh, that show that there's an economic benefit to having this service. And one of the differences now from 1970 or 1971 is people are finally figuring out that Columbus is the biggest city in Ohio. I mean, I have to keep saying, I ask people, what's the biggest city in Ohio? They say Cleveland. And I said, no, it's there and it's way up there. But Columbus has been growing, growing and growing. And they lost their service in 79. Does that make any sense to you? And most people say, well, no, it doesn't. And one of the other things that are different now than they were before is the birth of ride share and scooter share and bike share mm -hmm. to take care of some of the last mile differences between where the station happens to be and where people are trying to go. Uh, one of the benefits up in Fort, over in Fort Worth, as he was speaking of, is there's now rail service to both the Dallas Love Field and to the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport between there and their downtowns, and there's commuter regional rail down there. So the, what happens is, People don't, people don't live at airports like people don't live at train stations. So they have to get somewhere once they get there, and the ways to get there have really improved over the years. And, of course, we work with local transit. He mentioned the city buses in Fort uh -huh. Worth. They are right there, right next to our, our uh, intermodal station there, which is, I think, less than 12 years old. Uh, Abdusalam, thanks so much for that call. I want to squeeze in one more quick call for you, Mark, before I have to let you go. Mary in Columbus, you're on the air. Hi, Ann. Um, I think people's values have changed since 2010. In 2010, many people didn't believe in global warming. Now we know it's happening. Uh, electric cars weren't even considered. And in uh, this scenario, uh, I think the high-speed rail service is good because it's going to, number one, cut down on carbon emissions from cars, and uh, number two, give people an alternative to driving a car. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's a great idea. Okay. Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Uh, Mark Magliari, what about that? How does it compete with when it comes to emissions and its carbon footprint? Well, it's really no competition at all because we win big. Um, the fact is that our 
you get more, and the, the freight railroads talk about this sometimes too, about how much they can haul per gallon of diesel fuel. The same thing happens with us, and the carbon footprint of our Tier Four compliant locomotives, which we're we've already have in service in Greater Chicago and the Amtrak Midwest network for the last uh, five years. We're buying all new ones that are just like that across the country. So we're going to put out less uh, less emissions. We are going to take people there efficiently. We are going to reduce the carbon footprint of people moving and, again, improve their productivity. But I want to make sure that, that we maintain a certain amount of expectation management here. We're not talking about high-speed rail. Mm-hmm. We're talking about conventional rail at speeds that are driving time competitive. So. Uh, Mr. Musk is not going to be dilling tunnels under Ohio for our trains to go at uh, super-duper speed. We're looking at that using existing infrastructure and improving it, something that can be readily done and done across the country on rail, much easier than can be done than adding lanes to I-71 or I-70 uh, across your state. Mark Magliari, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Happy to join you again. You Hi, William. Thanks for... Thanks for doing this, too. Thanks, Mark. Mark Maguari is an Amtrak spokesperson. We are going to hear from All Aboard Ohio, uh, a statewide advocacy organization for the development of more and better passenger rail and public transit, when we return. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. We're talking about the future of passenger rail service between Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton. Still with us is William Murdoch, Executive Director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. And joining us is Stu Nicholson. He's Executive Director of the All Aboard Ohio, a statewide advocacy organization for the development of more and better passenger rail and public transportation. Stu Nicholson, welcome back. Hey, Ann. Has Happy your... retirement, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Two and a half months. I'm not counting. So what is, has your time finally come, Stu Nicholson? Well, I, I think uh, we should say it's come again. Uh, you know, I was with the Ohio Rail Development Commission the first time around when the 3C and D corridor was up. And, of course, the governor then sent uh, money back to Washington and pretty much killed the plan. So this is kind of like as Yogi Berra would say, deja vu all over again. Um, but I think it's better. I think it's you know certainly one big influence that has been the, the sheer amount of money at the federal level um, being invested in passenger rail. Uh, and, and there certainly is, I think, a, a desire that has built for it even more over the ensuing 12, 13 years. 
since I was with the commission. So, uh, you know, it, it, it is a, I'm very optimistic that this is going to happen. I think part of my optimism is based in the act is based in the actions of a lot of the metropolitan planning organizations like Morpsey and, and, and William Murdoch and, and, uh, and others involved around the state. Uh, that is unprecedented, uh, in, in my view. All right. Hypothetically, I mean, if it gets started now, if you think this is the real deal this time around, uh, how long, I mean, might my grandchildren someday ride <laughs> passenger rail, if I ever have any, uh, might, you know, I mean, what, what is it something that I'm going to be able to live to see? Oh, I mean, I, I would hope so. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I would, you know, say that most of these corridors are probably going to see, begin to see service in about four years. Um, you know, maybe a little bit longer. It all depends on what comes out of the studies that the that the rail commission is now undertaking, uh, as well as other corridors that are going to be studied. So, you know, it it is uh, you know you know it's it'll it'll be something that'll have, that'll happen in our lifetimes. Um, you know, and and uh, it will be something that will expand hopefully in our lifetimes as well. Um, let's see. Dante and Columbus are on the air. Hi, Dante. Hi, Ann. How you doing? Good, thanks. Go ahead. Oh, so I had a question, um, and it pertains to, uh, I know they said they're not looking at high-speed rail, mm -hmm. but um, I, I'm living outside of the United States in several different countries. Um, I'm wondering why there wouldn't be a push for high-speed over the non-high-speed rail um because drive say for instance driving from cleveland to columbus mm -hmm. is two and a half hours mm -hmm. why would why what would make me want to get on a train that drive that goes exactly the same speed i understand the convenience of not having to drive i get that but well i think that's not, kind of <laughs> Yeah. I mean, no, yeah. let's but, let's let's do Nicholson. I mean, I, I'm sure this is he's been uh, fielding these kinds of questions for 100 years. I, I get that question a lot. <laughs> All right. uh, Thanks, Dante. I, the, intent, the intent is to get good service on the tracks from day one, um, which would be trains uh, up to 79 miles an hour uh, with the eventual goal, I believe, to get those trains up to 110 miles an hour in either case. Um, you know, if, if that's the, if that's the average speed or close to it, then, you know, that will be competitive with, with driving, but, you know, but I don't want to undersell the point that, you know, that this is also gives you the option of traveling without having to have your hands cemented to a steering wheel and your foot going back and forth between the brake and a gas pedal. Um, you know, you know, this is productive time. This is time that you can use. Uh, you know, to do business, to open up a laptop, or just to do something as simple as, you know, read a newspaper, read a book, uh, listen to all sides on the, on your, <laughs> on, your on your radio. Free app. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe we can get you the franchise. I don't know. <laughs> well, our, you know, and, and there is a generational change in attitudes toward mass transit. Uh, William Murdoch. Yeah. I mean, when we look at 12 years ago, the iPhone was brand new. Uh, folks didn't have the same issue with attention or distractedness. We worry a lot about that with driving. Younger generation isn't getting their driver's license at, like we used to. And that means they're looking for options where they don't have to pay attention. And we think this is a, a really key part of it. On the speed question, your caller's right. We should be thinking big about speed. But part of how we know that we get there is we have to be on the network first. And 79 miles per hour is pretty good. 
we've talked a little bit about Michigan and just as a Buckeye, it gets under my skin that the trains in Michigan go 110 miles an hour. That's not true high speed, but boy, that you're when we've been up there to see it, you're passing cars on the highway, you're passing cars stuck in traffic at 110 miles this an hour. This is that route that's between the goal. Detroit yeah. and Chicago. Yeah, that's yeah. the goal. Well, as a Spartan, I'm very proud of Michigan. <laughs> oh, you should be, because it stops in Lansing. It stops in Lansing. Yeah, if I, could inter- yeah. if I could interject here, um, William loves to brag about riding on that train. He actually sent me a text with a picture of the speedometer in the car that said 110 miles an hour. <laughs> it's so, real. You know, you know, and I was I was pretty jazzed by that, too. But I, I just thought, all right, William's geeking out here. This is great. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, you know, the Northeast Ohio Area-Wide Coordinating Agency, which is kind of like Morpsey's counterpart, I guess, in Cleveland, is preparing its own application for federal funding. And we've talked about that. I'm wondering how... Morpsey and its Cleveland counterpart work together or not to make the argument for expanded and inner city Ohio service. Yeah, I can take that. Yeah. We, we are working very closely up and down the 3 CD corridor with NOACA and the other entities like that. And on the uh, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Chicago corridor, we have every one of the organizations like ours from Chicago to Pittsburgh and all the rural ones in between working on these. And like Stu had said earlier and Mark had said earlier, we're all rowing in the same direction to try to make this happen. And it happens through cooperation. Okay. And the cities in Columbus uh, separately, what sort of roles do they play at this point in the process, Stu Nicholson? Well, I should point out that among the entities that filed official uh, nominations of corridors, if you will, with the FRA last fall, were all of the mayors along the 3C and D corridor. And that is a bipartisan group of mayors, I should should point out. Um, and, you know, so the, the cities are working, I think, cooperatively with the, with their you know, local MPOs. Um, you know, we're cert- we have certainly asked them to, to you know, make the, our congressional representatives aware of, you know, the fact that at some point, you know, we, you know we're going to be applying for more grants. We're going to be pursuing uh, upgrades. Uh, you know, the, the Federal Railroad Administration also has a long distance study going on as well. And we're, we're urging people to, to comment on that. You know, that would affect all three trains that currently serve Ohio. So, but the, but the, the, the corridors like the three C and D and Cleveland, uh, Toledo, Detroit, um, you know, you know, it's, it, we have to look upon these as being starters. You know, and and once they get going, if you follow the history of almost every state-supported startup in the nation, you know they started modestly. They had ridership that generally went beyond you know the predicted numbers, uh, and they've since expanded. Uh, the state of Maine, uh, the downeaster, started with three trains a day. It's now adding a sixth because ridership is at that is at that level, and is and the popularity is at that level. And that's a train that still does not travel over 79 miles an hour, I should point out. Okay. The other thing that's worth pointing out is keep an eye on California. California is actually dry, you know, actually building a true high-speed rail line. I think what the, once that gets up and running, that's going to feed into you know, the, the uh, desire for, for more and greater speeds. But William's absolutely right. You, you know, we start out modest, we make it competitive with driving, and uh, we're in good shape. Mike in Licking County, you're on the air. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ann. Uh, earlier, there was a, you had a question, I think it was, about um, why would people resist uh, new passenger rail connecting cities in Ohio? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I can think of is 
uh, and Stu may be able to answer this actually, is how many construction companies in Ohio lay new rail or do maintenance, uh, repair, upgrades on rail? I can think of two or three. And when you compare that to the construction companies building new highway, expanding highways, uh, repairing highways, uh, there's hundreds of them. Okay. And that's, you know, the railroads take care of their own track themselves. That's out of their maintenance budgets. And we taxpayers subsidize the highway construction. Yeah. So if if the Amtrak new lines or improved lines, if they reduce the passenger miles on highways by, say, a quarter to one-third, that means those sections of the roads aren't going to be, you know, they won't have to rebuild, repair, or expand them yeah. as frequently. So that's a big impact on the construction companies. So I'm sure they're beating the doors down to tell the state legislators to support Amtrak. Get out there and get more rail in, and let's get people off the road. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Um, Stu Nicholson, what about that? Well, I mean, the, the heavy contractors in the state of Ohio, the Kokosings and other companies, um, you know, they do all of the things that you need to do to build a railroad. You know, the only difference is uh, instead, of build, instead of putting asphalt or concrete on top, you put ballast and ties and, and, and rails. There's going to be a lot of work out there as this as this moves along, uh, because we just can't put a train on a corridor. We have to have make sure that the corridor is able to handle the speeds. It has to have signals. It, you know, it, we're going to have to add track and you know and and uh, right of way and things like that. Uh, you know, so so this is a source of business for for major contractors in the state of Ohio. Uh, they've got the expertise. I mean, you know, they. You know they uh, they move dirt as my as my uh, former boss at the rail commission used to say and and everything else. I mean, who would you, who else would you want to have work for them? Yeah, yeah. Um, William Murdoch. And I I think to the caller, Central Ohio in particular is growing quarter million people in the last decade. We're going to need all of those options. So certainly uh, there'll be road construction and trail construction and train construction. Uh, we think that the private sector is going to really be engaged in this. William Murdoch, Executive Director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ann. Absolutely. And Stu Nicholson, Executive Director of All Aboard Ohio, a statewide advocacy organization for the development of more and better passenger rail and public transit. Stu, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Glad to be a part of it, Ann. Thanks for having me. Thanks to everybody else for listening. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.